2 Samuel chapter 6. This passage is about David bringing the ark of God into the capital city of Jerusalem. It hasn't been that long since he's been anointed king over all of Israel, and he's had victory after victory. God has really shown him favor, and what's going to be unfolding in the chapter before us is quite an amazing occurrence. And I think it speaks profoundly into our lives as Christians and our lives as worshipers. If I could preface this message by saying uh, the heart of this message is probably one of the most important things that I'll ever share with you. Um, the substance of this chapter, if you can get this into your heart, this will be one of the most impactful messages in terms of content and heart that I think can have in your entire lives. Um, if I could slow it down that much, just to let you know that. Um, regardless if you think the temperature is right in this room or not, regardless of whether you think the molding is distracting or not, I hope that you can focus on the passage, not necessarily just like me talking to you, but if you can get the content of what happens in our chapter today, it will make a profound difference in your life. Can we start actually from verse 1 of chapter 6? I'd like to read the entire chapter. David, again, has just been anointed king over all of Israel. He's had some military victories. And as he's now ascended to the throne, one of the first things that he does is that he assembles a group of people, 30,000 in number. And this is what it says. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. And if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, at least know this. The ark of God is the tangible representation, the presence of God. Okay? And so he brought up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim, and they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Ahio, walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And here's one of the most confusing verses to some. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, 
And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and the fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel bringing up the ark of the Lord was shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. That's his wife. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and he said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant maids and one of the fool- as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. And so David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Amen. David, the new king of Israel. He gathers this massive assembly of 30,000 people. And he's saying to himself, we want God to be worshipped in the capital. So he decides, let's bring this ark. And as they're bringing this ark from the house of Abinadab, the two sons, Ahio and Uzzah, in front and in back of it, basically. And as this oxen is leading this new cart, they come down to this place of rocky ground. And as this cart is shaking, the ark of God, not wanting it to be disturbed or fall to the ground, dare I say, broken, Uzzah reaches out to stabilize it. And in that moment, something happens and Uzzah is completely struck dead for irreverence. A lot of people are confused at that. Like, why would God do that? That seems to be a good thing that Uzzah is doing. He didn't want it to fall to the ground and shatter. Of course he would do that. And this passage of Scripture offers so much confusion to some. 
And as you read the entire chapter to find the context, you have to dig a little bit deeper. You have to know the context of why God would do such a thing. And so there's a pause in the middle of this chapter. David is confused. He's actually angry at God. God, why would you do this to him? He was actually trying to help the ark. And it says he was angry. And he left the ark there at that place. And he went back. And for three months it stayed there. And something happens to David. Because it says in verse 9, So David was afraid. Afraid. And I think it is this fear of God that caused the shift in David and it changed the circumstances from the first time trying to bring the ark into the capital and then trying to resume it the second time through. And you got to get what happens in this chapter. If you don't know a lot about context, please, would you write two references down if you can? In your sermon outline, in your Bible if you had it, if you want to write a note in the Bible app that you use on your phone, wherever you can get this, you can write these two references. First reference, Numbers chapter 7, verse 9. Okay, Numbers 7, verse 9. That's the main one. And then just a few chapters earlier, Numbers chapter 3, verse 31. It is these two verses that offer powerful context to understand why God was angry at Uzzah. Why this entire circumstance really upset the Lord and why he was struck dead. Because you got to get those two verses. Okay. Numbers chapter 7 that context from verse 1, Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and it says in verse 9, as he's distributing duties to all of the Levitical priests, it says in verse 9, but he did not give any to the sons of Kohath because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. And so Levi had a bunch of families, and these were the priests of God's people Israel. And to the Kohathites, God, Moses said to them, your duty in the temple is the objects. And whenever you take these objects from one place to another, you should carry them on your shoulders. Chapter 3 says this, speaking of the Kohathites, now their duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, and the utensils of the sanctuary which they were to minister, and the screen and all the service concerning them. And so if you patch these two verses together, you understand 2 Samuel chapter 6. This ark of God was a part of the holy objects that the Kohathites were in charge of, and it, was, it had no business being on a cart. This ark. It was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests, the Kohathites. And then when we understand this, we realize that God does not want to be carried on a cart. If in the Old Testament, the Ark of God was a representation of God Himself, that He would meet with His people, that there were these angelic statues perched on the top of this box, elongated by poles on both sides, and here in the middle on the top of this box, God said, it is a seat of mercy. I will dwell here. My presence will be here. I will meet with you here. I will speak with you here and so it is this box that God said I am here with you 
And when this dwells in the temple, in the tabernacle, I want you to know that I will meet with you. I will forgive your sins there. And when you carry this ark, I want my ministers, the Kohathites, the Levites, to carry this object on their shoulders. And something happened here. Regardless of where the confusion was, whether it was David's confusion, the people's confusion, or whether it was just their abruptness to get this ark from where it was to Jerusalem. Something was missed and it was the most important thing. They'd completely forgotten the foundation of what God had said about this ark of God, how it was to be transported, and they thought lightly of it. And in that moment when God struck a man dead for irreverence, as it says in Scripture, all the world stopped for David. First anger, second contemplation, because his anger brought him to the place, Lord, why would you do this? Why would you strike a man dead for doing a good deed? And I can imagine he's going to all of the, the Levites. He's going to everybody who knew anything about Scripture. What happened? And he's assembling all of the, the scriptural scholars. And I can imagine them digging through all of the scrolls of Moses. They're going into Genesis and Leviticus. And they're going into all of the writings. And they come across this. Ah. Holy objects. Ark. Kohathites. Shoulders. Because what happens the second time? Let's start from verse 12 again. Now it was told David that the Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on the account of the ark. And so verse 13, And so it was that when the bearers... That is the only thing that changed from pre-verse 12, 13 to then what happened the second time. It is now the bearers of the ark. Something happened in David that day where his anger turned to contemplation, turned to a healthy fear of God, led to him rummaging through Scripture, uncovering truth, and now they got it right. The bearers, those who were carrying the ark of God, were now bringing it from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David. And so you got to get the important lessons out of here. You got to understand something about God that He doesn't want to be carried on objects of worship, on vehicles for worship. He wants to be carried on His creation. And I think about that. And my first thing for you today, in terms of a main point, is that God doesn't want to be carried on man made tools for worship. Right? And I, I see the, the new cart, right? It's a new one. And you can think, of, like, this is great. It's probably overlaid with precious metals and stones, maybe, right? And it was so flashy. And, and they're thinking, yeah, this is a new cart. We want to give God our best in this. And they're, they're leading God's ark with this. But somehow, it disturbs God. And I draw from this passage that we must not rely on our instruments, on facilities, on the vehicles that we use for worship. If we think about, you know, the music really sounded good. You know, I was able to worship because we were at this conference and the band was just amazing. The lighting was awesome. The colors were great. The facility is top-notch. And it was really conducive for worship. 
How often do we say to ourselves, it was so easy to worship in that environment? How often do we allow the depth of what we perceive to be our worship to go into deeper spaces when the environment is right, when the tools are there, when the vehicle, the platform seems to be oh so good? And so what I want to say is, now I understand we need instrumentation. Even in Scripture, old and new, they had trumpets and cymbals and lyres. They had all of this. These tools and instruments are good and important in worship, but we must not use that as the foundational piece for our worship of how we bring God into our church, into our cities, into our families. We're not trying to bring Him into the city of Anaheim through the vehicle of a facility. We're not trying to usher in a spirit of worship through great instrumentation. What we're saying is that the worship of God fundamentally must be on the hearts of His people. That that's where it must sit first and foremost. That we must not rely on instruments and buildings and tools. And you kind of get in this passage that there was something slightly off the first time. You, you kind of like they were leading the cart. You, you kind of get a sense that they thought lightly of that moment. You know what happened that day, in my opinion, was one of the most important things that happened in David's life. Because what verse 9 says, David was afraid. Like it was a shocker. Like, I mean, to strike a man dead for that. And it says he was afraid. Now, I, I read this, and I don't see this as an unhealthy fear, like, God, I'm so afraid of you. I see this as what it says in Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And please understand me when I say this. I want you to examine your heart. And I want you to see if there's a fear of God. Like, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I've led students to adults. I've been in countries that are different, cities, worship environments. And I've talked to and led a lot of people through the years. And I can't begin to tell you how many times I smile back at somebody and I, I cringe inside. When someone lightly says to me, you know, Pastor Rob, you know, I, I, I miss service. I, miss, I couldn't come to church last Sunday because I had a bunch of errands to run and Sunday was my only day off. Like when we just stroll into worship casually, whether later on time, not thinking about what this moment means for our faith. Now, I don't want to get legalistic. I don't want to say that worship must be confined to a facility at a designated time. 
what I'm trying to say is these things uncover something. It uncovers a lightness that I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss what happened in the first half of this chapter and what culminated in verse 9. Because I'll tell you this for sure. If you will have a healthy fear of God in your life, your life will be good. I guarantee it. Like, what happened to David here is the most important thing that happened. Because what happens second time? God's blessing Obed-Edom. And David's like, man, I want God to bless the capital. He's like, let's, let's get back on this. Let's bring it here. And the second time, they got, the, they got it right, the bearers, right? They got that right. The bearers of the ark, they're carrying it now. There's no cart. This room is not very big. One, two, three, four, five. Halfway. You stop all the thousands of people that have assembled. Everything stops right here. And I went from that wall to here. And what do they do? They bring out an ox and a fatling. Have you ever tried to walk a small dog? Like how hard is that sometimes? If you have a very, very stubborn dog. Okay. Now, we're not talking about a small ant. We're talking about an ox and a fatling. David says, stop! And they bring out these two animals. And they offer it to the Lord. And then they go again. And before you reach the other side of this room, they stop again. And they offer an ox and a fatling. Now, I don't know about you, but just to go the span of this room would take some time. Now, how far was it from Obed-Edom's house going all the way to the capital? Even just getting to the gate of the city and going from the gate of the city to the palace or the tabernacle, wherever it was next to, we're talking about distance. If you wanted to offer an ox and a fatling down the street of Orange to get from one light to the next, multiply that by some, and you'll figure out that this is going to take some time. That what David did the second time through showed an extravagance in worship, a purpleness, a purposefulness to his actions that is unlike any other. And why would he do such a thing? It is because of verse 9, he feared God. That his worship changed. That what he did as a leader changed. Everything was different. The first time they were celebrating with, with lyres and tambourines and all of that stuff. And all of these people were celebrating it. And that didn't work out. So they got rid of the ark. And they started sacrificing an ox and a fatling every six steps. And then he did something remarkable. He derobed. And he's wearing a linen ephod and he's dancing like crazy. It's not, he wasn't hot or sweaty. 
anything that distinguished his kingly nature, I can see him saying, you know what? I'm just a worshiper. And he takes off his robe and he just dances before the God with all of his might, it says. And you've danced with all your might before, right? And he's doing this before the, the Lord, offering time and time and time again. And I don't know how long this took, but I, I guarantee you it took some time. I can guarantee you it took at least two things. Time and effort. It took heart, but it took time and effort. And if there's anything that can be countercultural, worship-wise, to how the American church has morphed, I can see this as an example. That I'm, I mean, I, I like good aesthetics. I like things to be comfortable, and I want them to be comfortable in the church. Thus, we've tried to do a lot of things over these last three weeks. But I tell you, like when I, when I see this, uh, like, like we could lose all of the carpets and colors and equipment and furniture. And if we as a church, City Chapel, just exemplify what David exemplified here. To get rid of stature, to search Scripture, to fear God, and to be able to offer something that was so time-consuming and involved so much effort, so much heart. I'd love a church like that. And so I, I, I share again. I think the heart of this message is one of the most important things that I can ever share with you as a pastor, as a shepherd. Um, I want to do a lot of things to lead our church. Uh, I want to make sure things are tidy and flow well. But I, I, I tell you, the example that I want to give you as a church is what David did here. Like, uh, like when, you, when you see me, I, I, I want to be a person that doesn't hang my, myself and my name on my title or my position. And that I'm ready and willing to lose myself because that there's something intrinsic in me that knows that uh, it's before God. That there's a fear uh, in a healthy way that leads to undignified worship and an expression that can be so extravagant. Worship is costly. Jesus was sitting in the house of a man named Simon. <laughs> He's talking to people and teaching them. And then all of a sudden, the door busts open and this woman just comes pouring through the doorway. She's carrying a jar. She finds Jesus, falls at his feet, smashes the jar, and begins to anoint him. And everyone's <gasps> in horror at this sight. What's going on? Right? 
And this fragrance was now filling the room and also indignation because everyone was now judging the woman, saying, what a waste, what a waste. Perfume is meant to be measured drop by drop, not poured out like this. It's a waste. And Jesus quiets everybody. Hey, leave her alone. And it was a picture of extravagant worship, costly perfume. Hundreds of dollars of expression in worship. And Jesus received that. Oxens and fatlings, ephods and dancing, thousands upon thousands in procession. with all his might. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I, I, I just hope my pause is enough for you. Like, really, just, if you can this week, reread this chapter. And I, I, if, I just want you to try to get this into your heart, into your spirit. You know, I opened my eyes briefly in the midst of worship and I looked at Dina. And I saw her with railings strapped. And she had those baby noise-canceling <laughs> earphones. And I said, that was a, a picture of costly worship, at least in that moment as I framed it, as I saw it. I mean, number one, it's not easy to come up with a baby. And I can imagine it gets kind of hot and stuffy with a baby's body heat strapped to you in the midst of you singing. Dealing and trying to cancel out the noise so you don't affect a young baby's hearing instruments for the rest of her life and figuring out what you can do to minimize or to cancel out that adverse effect while not sacrificing worship. None of that was said or communicated by her, but it was just something that I saw in that moment. And then a, it birthed a prayer. It birthed a prayer that make that young little daughter, that, that baby, may she have one of the most amazing angelic voices of worship for her generation, because that's how her life is beginning, right? I'm going to end. You guys come back. I want to end with verse 21. 
David's wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, is perched, probably in a high window of a palace, looking down. Literally and figuratively at her husband. David makes his way in his underwear. And she's like, what are you doing? You're the king. You got servants and maids everywhere. They're all looking at you. What are you doing? Oh, how lightly esteemed you are, O king. And then David brushes it off. And he utters three of the most important words of his life, of his reign, of his husbandry duties. The three most important words of his life. Before the Lord. I wasn't dancing for those maids you talked about. I wasn't dancing for this nation, for those priests. I wasn't dancing for anybody else. I was dancing before the Lord. This past week, actually two, three weeks, I've had various people you know, there's another church that meets here and a couple of the people that are here helping do stuff over there. They see me here midweek, you know, working on stuff. And, you know, part of it's just cordialness and greeting with a slight hint of truth. It's like, oh, you know, pastor, why are you suffering like this? You're doing all of this work, and why are you doing all of this by yourself? And my reply was, I'm not, number one. You just don't see them. They're all working right now, but a lot of them come here at night, and they're helping out in different ways. That's number one. I'm not doing it by myself, but I come here during the daytime because I work here during the daytime, and when I see something to do, I want to do it. But the feeling of the comment was like, oh, Church members don't see what you're doing. They, they, they don't appreciate it. And I was quick. I piped up right back. I said, if I don't have joy, I wouldn't be doing this. And I said, honestly, I'm not doing it for them. I'm not here scraping little things, trying to make smooth surfaces, bringing different colors of cans of paint to try to make sure lines are pure at corners. I'm not doing this for church members, I said. I hope you're not offended at that, because it's not. And there was so much joy in my heart, like I've shared these last few weeks, because I feel like this is an expression of worship before the Lord. And so I turn the table to you. If you, if you come to worship 
or you help with our facility or you're serving in any capacity, please don't do it for me. Don't. Do it for the Lord. Because that's the perspective that we need in life. That's what sets everything in proper order. Because as soon as you get that messed up, everything messes up. You start to have expectations and then disappointments because you're, you're doing things for people and they're not returning the favor or they're not acknowledging your effort. And all that stuff, it just twists marriages, it twists partnership, it twists our working culture, it twists everything when you start doing things for people. Because you want something back. You want recognition or return the favor. You want the money back. But when you start offering for the Lord, it's like they, they didn't know it. Oh, it's all right. They didn't say anything good about it. It's all right. They didn't do anything back for you. It's all right. It wasn't for you. It was for the Lord. Like that. Get that. And that happens because he feared God. And the fear of God happened because God demonstrated an act of judgment based on irreverence. And David was searching scripture, searching his heart, and he finally figured it out. Okay, let's carry it and let's offer stuff. Let's dance and let's do all of this. And it's not for any of you. I feared God. He struck a man dead for something that I did not think he would. In my life, I am not a king first. I'm a child of God first. I'm a worshiper first. And everything was set straight. And David, in all of Scripture, is the only man that was ever designated the title man after God's own heart. There's a lot of people in the Bible. He's the only one. Go figure. He had experiences like this. Like, what do we need to have taken away from us? What disaster must we encounter? What anger must we have before the Lord before we finally get it straight, before the calibration on the scale of our heart is finally set right? And it's north, it's to the Lord, it's there. Like, what is it? For David, it was Uzzah. But I'm profoundly glad that he had that encounter in his life. And I pray that for us as a church. Amen? Like, let's live before the Lord. Let's sing before the Lord. When you sing a song, we're like so prone to think about the people next to us. When we're giving an offering, we're thinking about, am I getting a, a acknowledged for this? Where is this going? And like, we're doing so many things and like there's so many different expectations in people. Let's let that all silence out. Let's start, if we have yet to do so, or if we've forgotten to do so, do things before the Lord. Amen?